So tonight, as I said, we're looking at just this one verse, Psalm 27 and verse 4. And in this verse, we see another portrait of the Christian life, in addition to the portrait that we had painted for us in Colossians this morning. This morning, we saw that the Christian is one who receives Jesus as all-sufficient in the first place, and then continues this way throughout his Christian life. Tonight we will see that the Christian is one who has a longing for God and a love for his church. As we consider Psalm 27 for together tonight, I will explain that. Let's begin with a working definition of the beauty of the Lord. The psalmist says that he wants to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, first we should note that when we speak of the beauty of the Lord, we're speaking about a non-visual beauty. It can't be a physical beauty or a visual beauty because, as the children's catechism says, God is spirit and does not have a body like men. And even the body of Christ, which is joined to the person of the Son, as our confession says, without conversion, composition, or confusion, even that body has, as Isaiah 53, 2 puts it, no form or majesty that we should look at Him, and no beauty that we should desire Him. So the beauty of the Lord is not about the way that the Lord looks. And of course, there is a category for non-visual beauty. Think, for example, of poetry. Different people's tastes may vary about what constitutes beautiful language, but most would readily acknowledge that language can be used in a beautiful way. And of course, sound can be beautiful. We might think of music. Or we might think of a baby's laughter. Beautiful sounds. But neither of these are what is meant by the phrase, the beauty of the Lord. It's not that the Lord uses language well, that He is a poet and therefore He is beautiful. Nor does it mean that the Lord sounds beautiful. The beauty of the Lord refers essentially to the virtues of God, if we may put it that way. Just as we value the virtues of heroism, love, selflessness in a human being, so there are what we might call virtues in God. His attributes, His excellencies, His perfections are more precise theological terms to use here. But I say virtues to make the point that They are who God is rather than what God does. When a war hero sacrifices himself to save those in his unit, the sacrifice is the action he took. But that action stemmed from or arose from a virtue in the man. Selflessness or love or whatever exact label we might put on it. So there is what he does, namely there's an action, but that action flows from who he is 
we might call that a virtue, an attribute, an excellency of that man, if you will. When we speak about the beauty of the Lord, we're not denying the beauty of what He has done in creation or in redemption. But we're not speaking specifically to God's actions when we speak about the beauty of the Lord. Rather, we are speaking about God's attributes. Who God is in Himself without regard to His actions is beautiful. The Bible tells us in a select few places, including here in Psalm 27, 4, that God is beautiful. But there are surprisingly few places which tell us specifically which attributes in God form the basis of His beauty. I can't help but think that this is intentional. There are two ways to communicate that everything about someone is beautiful. One way is to list them all. This person is beautiful in these ways, and then list them all. Another way to speak of the comprehensiveness of beauty in someone is to say something like this, I can't name only one thing. I think this is why the scripture doesn't really tell us what it is about God that is beautiful or doesn't really try to make a comprehensive list. It's as if the Bible says we can't just name one thing or these few things. Everything about who God is is beautiful. When it comes to God, we cannot prioritize one attribute over another and say attribute A is beautiful. But attribute, attribute B is still somewhat beautiful, but less so. We can't do that with God. People do this all the time with respect to God's love and God's holiness in the course of evangelism. Right? You've seen that done, I guarantee it, at some point in your life. People go on and on in evangelism gushing about how God is love. And then they sort of apologize when they say, but God is also holy. As if God's love is more beautiful than His holiness. And that His hatred of sin and guilt is somehow less beautiful. And they sort of sneak it in the back door as they evangelize. But everything that God is, is beautiful. God's love is beautiful. And God's holiness is beautiful. How hideous God would be if He were apathetic towards sin. When atrocities happen and God was like, well, whatever, I'm a God of love. How hideous that would be. There is so much destruction that sin brings to us and so much dishonor that it brings to Him that He could not be a beautiful God if He were just apathetic about sin. And so not only His love is beautiful, but His holiness is also beautiful. And everything that God is, is beautiful. Oh, just to behold the triune fellowship of the Father and the Son and the Spirit in eternity past, if we could speak that way, before there was creation. And just to see God in Himself without having 
done anything for which we now recognize him to be great and glorious without having yet created, without having yet redeemed, and just to see him, just to behold him. In himself, we would see that he is beautiful. The beauty of the Lord is therefore who God is. So with that working definition in mind, let's look more closely at the actual words of Psalm 27.4, beginning with the first phrase, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that I will seek after. Obviously David does not mean that he has no desire whatsoever for food or water. Obviously David does not mean that he has no desire for physical protection or safety nor that he is unable to recognize any beauty at all but that beauty which is in God. We see in the Psalms David appealing to God to restore his strength and to quench his thirst in Psalm 22:15. And we see David in the Psalms praying for God to keep him safe. This is in multiple Psalms. All you have to do is read through quickly and you can't miss it. We see David recognizing beauty in creation in multiple psalms as well. So at least in some sense, David does seek after other things besides that one thing which he mentions here in this passage. But this statement, one thing have I asked of the Lord. One thing will I seek after. This is a statement of the comparative strength of David's desire for this thing over against his desires for other things. It's as if David said, of everything I ask of the Lord or seek after, this will be the one primary thing. And it will be so primary to me that other things aren't even worth comparing in importance. I'll ask the Lord... And seek after this one thing so devotedly and so focusedly that you might as well say, it's the one thing that I will seek after. This is like Psalm 51. This type of language is like Psalm 51. When David, after committing adultery and killing the woman's husband, says, against you and you only have I sinned. Well, he didn't really think that he was guiltless towards Bathsheba. He didn't really think that he was guiltless towards Uriah. But comparatively, comparatively, he realized that his sin against the Lord was the far more weighty matter. This is also like when Jesus said that if anyone wants to be his disciple, they must hate their father and their mother. Of course, Jesus is not casting aside the fifth commandment and saying, don't worry about honoring your parents anymore. Now you should hate them. I've changed and my moral requirements have changed. Don't honor them anymore. Hate them. That's how you follow. That's not at all what God is saying to us. Rather, Jesus is explaining by using comparative language that allegiance to He Himself must precede any and all other relationships, including family relationships. And that by such a wide margin 
that your love for Christ could make all lesser loves look like hate by comparison. That you would love Christ so drastically that all of your other loves would be like, well, what is this compared to that? It's as if you hate these people when we see how much you love Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. So this comparative language is here in this psalm also. One thing will I seek after. David has a foremost singular focus in life. And what is it? It is just one thing. But it's twofold. It has two aspects. One pertaining to the house of the Lord. Or the temple. And one pertaining to the beauty of the Lord. That's the way that the rest of this verse unfolds. Psalm 27 and verse 4. So let's discuss both of these aspects of this one thing that David desires. Beginning with David's desire to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. When with fixedness of thought, Matthew Henry says. When with fixedness of thought and a holy flame of devout affections, we contemplate God's glorious excellencies. This is that view of the beauty of the Lord which David here covets. Have you ever, have you ever fixed your thoughts on God and felt a flame of devout affections in your heart as you contemplate God's glorious excellency? If you have literally no idea what I'm talking about, I would venture to say that you may have never experienced the new birth. For as Matthew Henry also says, to delight in God above any creature is a sign that we are of those whom God protects as his own. Sure, we find our vision of God obscured at times and in seasons. There is a spiritual fog or a dark night of the soul or a blurriness caused by bad doctrine or trying circumstances which obscures for a time This vision of the Lord which just ravishes us and enraptures us in glory and bliss and warmth. For whatever reason, sometimes we lose this sight of God. But to never have known anything ever of fixing your affections, pardon me, fixing your thoughts on God and finding a fire of holy affections burning in your heart for God is a bad sign that perhaps you have actually never yet seen the beauty of the Lord. Do you desire to see the beauty of the Lord for the first time again and again? First, you need to know God. And to know God, you must read Learn, mark, and inwardly digest this book, as the Book of Common Prayer says. You must pour over that book until you see our triune God in all of His glorious perfections. Come to us in Christ. Come down to us to dwell with we, His people, who are His in and through Christ Jesus. You must learn God's law and see yourself as a sinner. 
You must learn God's gospel and find that Christ came to save sinners. And you must not just embrace the doctrine of the gospel, but Christ Jesus himself. And you must lean on Jesus, trusting in his life and in his death on your behalf to achieve the righteousness you didn't and to bear the wrath that you deserve. You must turn from your sins and begin to try to obey God day by day. And throughout your life, you must keep your eyes of faith fixed on God as He has revealed Himself in His Word, that most fully and completely in Christ. As John Owen says, the revelation that is made in the Scriptures of the glorious excellencies and endowments of His person, of His love, His goodness, His grace, of His worth and work, this revelation is that which engages the affections of believers unto Him. And it is the eye of faith alone looking at this revelation which can see the King in His beauty. What then should you do if you desire to see the beauty of the Lord? Believe the Gospel. Do your devotions every day. Read your Bible. Commune with God in prayer. Plead with God for a clearer view of Christ. Spend time with people who direct your thoughts and your affections toward God. Be one who does that for others who directs their thoughts and affections Godward. Christians, how often do we spend time together informally and yet fail to direct one another's thoughts and affections Godward? Would we all be more heavenly minded? Not just thinking about heaven as the end though, but also heaven as the above, even now. This world is not all there is. And we're not just talking about present and future. We're talking about below and above. Even right now, there is a heaven. There is a resurrected Christ. There is a throne room. There is a thrice holy God. There are the elders around the throne and the living creatures and the multitude so large that no one can count even now praising God. Direct your thoughts heavenward, not just in the sense of I'm going to go there one day, but that it's happening now. And these are realities. Presently, Christians, like athletic training partners, neither of whom may feel like running or lifting weights on a particular day, but both motivate each other due to a common commitment to the work. Christians, we can be like that for one another, like athletic training partners, and out of a mutual commitment to become more heavenly minded, we may be mutually helpful to one another in that endeavor. And in addition to daily devotions and informal Christian fellowship, if we desire to see the beauty of the Lord, commit yourself to the church. Really commit yourself. 
Or if you have already, then stay committed. Let's consider now the second aspect of David's one desire. Overall, it's to see the beauty of the Lord, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. But he wants to dwell in the house of the Lord. And there, from there, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. To do it from within God's temple. David refers to both the house of the Lord and the temple of the Lord. In his context, it's the same referent. It refers to the same place. In the New Testament, the concept of temple can be applied to individual believers. Like in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Sometimes it's spoken of as you are the temple. Sometimes in the New Testament, the temple refers to Christ Jesus, that He is the temple, the meeting place between God and man. But the New Testament application of this particular usage in the Psalms would be the church. Here's Matthew Henry again. With what a gracious earnestness David prays for a constant communion with God in holy ordinances. David desires that he might duly and constantly attend on the public service of God. In the courts of God's house, the priests had their lodgings, and David wished that he had been one of them. To be ever engaged in the worship of God in the place where God had promised to be specially present. That's the desire of David's heart. David wants not only to fix his thoughts on God and to contemplate his excellencies he wants to do it in the place where God has promised that his special presence would be in his day that was literally the temple in our day it's not a building but it's a people When we are assembled in the name of Jesus, God is specially present among us. God is omnipresent, so God is as much out there as He is in here. God is as much with a group gathering in a casino tonight or a strip club or wherever else. In a a technical sense, God is omnipresent, and so He is everywhere with everyone at all times. But God has promised to be specially present with His church. Where two or three are gathered in My name, there I am among them, Jesus says. In Matthew chapter 18 and verse 20. This doesn't mean, contrary to public opinion, that when two or three Christians get together for a coffee, their God is specially present among them. It means that when the church is assembled as the church, even if it's a small church of two or three, when the church assembles as the church, with the marks of a true church upon them, gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus, this is a gathering of the saints. God is specially present among them. According to His omnipresence, He's present everywhere. 
but according to his special and benevolent presence, he is with the church. And so the church is the modern day equivalent in the sense that David's using it here in 27 4, Psalm 27 4 of the Old Testament temple. It is the place here and now where we can expect God to be specially present. When the saints are assembled for worship, God is as specially present with us now in this New Testament age as He was specially present with His Old Covenant people at the physical temple. God's plan of redemption is by God's design deeply intertwined with the institution of the church. As His plan and His revelation and His special presence was so deeply intertwined in the Old Covenant age with first the tabernacle and then the temple. So in the New Covenant, God's plan and God's revelation and God's presence is specially and deeply intertwined with the New Testament church. It is the church which is the pillar and buttress of the truth. 1 Timothy 3.15 And it is in the church primarily that we are stirred up to love and good works. Hebrews chapter 10, 23-25 The church is also called the apple of God's eye in Scripture. And so closely does Jesus identify Himself with His people that in Matthew 25, Jesus teaches that the way we treat brothers and sisters in Christ is the way that He will consider us to have treated He Himself when we stand before Him to give an account on Judgment Day. In view of this, Christian, really commit yourself to the apple of God's eye. Commit yourself to that assembly of saints where God has promised to be specially present. Get on board with the Father's heart and the Father's plan for His people. Prioritize being where God has specially promised to be. Namely, among His people, formally gathered as His church. And if you are already committed and prioritized, remain so. We all know that it would be easy, that it is easy to drift away even moderately or to just drop off altogether. We've seen people do it. But that would be so wrong and it is so wrong whenever it happens. If you want to see the beauty of the Lord, there is no better place to see the beauty of the Lord than in the church. And I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about the assembly of the people. We could meet here. We could meet like the saints in Malawi under a tree. We could move to another building. It's not the physical location. It's being among God's people. Living out our lives in the context of God's people and the meetings, the assemblies of God's people. Lord's Day by Lord's Day, formally and informally throughout the week. It ought to be, Christian, your desire to gather together with God's people as you're able to. And not just online. Obviously, I know lots of you have a valid reason for being online tonight. 
this is not a rebuke, but there is something to being in person. We don't believe that being online is an equal and suitable alternative to being here in person. All things being equal and taking into account public health, etc., it ought to be our earnest desire, each and every one of us and those watching online, when it is prudent to do so, to see restrictions on churches lifted so that we can all assemble together at once. And when it is prudent to do so, and I'm not commenting on public health policy here, to see us be able to meet together without masks and to hug one another and to shake hands with one another, to greet one another with the modern equivalent of the New Testament holy kiss. It ought to be our desire to be together in person, assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, all together where God is specially present among His people. In the meantime, as we're on this rotation, it ought to be your earnest desire not to come out just once when you're scheduled, but if it were possible to be here for both services. And when the restriction is lifted to do just that, to come twice to the assembly of the saints. And when we can, to start meeting in person for our midweek community group. Not just to see one another's face on Zoom and hear one another's voices. It mitigates to some extent the alienation that we would otherwise experience if we can at least meet online. But it would be so much better to have a full couch and full chairs and a full living room as we once did before COVID. There ought to be a longing in your heart that these restrictions would be behind us, that we can be together again. And in the meantime, we ought to be taking advantage of every opportunity that we can to be together in person if possible or online if necessary. But if it's your overarching desire, listen, if it's your overarching desire to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, what else could you be doing on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening? What else could you be doing on a Wednesday night that's going to be more effective than being with the saints assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus where He has promised when two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also. If it is your desire, your overarching desire, that one thing that you really, really want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, you'll take advantage as often as possible of the worship happening in His temple where that is the constant aim and activity. I know it's hard and tedious and boring and uncomfortable, all these things. It is for me too, I'll be honest. Many a Sunday morning, I don't feel like being here. Many a Sunday evening, I don't feel like being here. Many a Wednesday evening, I don't feel like having community group. And let me be honest with you, especially since we've gone online. Many a Wednesday night, I do not want to log on to Zoom. Listen, many Sunday mornings, I don't feel like I've met with God. 
Many Sunday nights, I don't feel like I'm out with God. Many Wednesday nights, I don't feel like I'm out with God. Just being honest. It doesn't always feel like we want it to feel when we assemble with the saints. But let me paint a mental picture for you in closing of a person who is a modern-day David, as he is portrayed to us here in this psalm, as one who has this one thing that he seeks after, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord from within God's house, from within God's temple. All right? The New Testament Christian once was lost, but now is found. Was blind, but now he sees. He discovered that there is a God, thrice holy, who is of purer eyes than to behold evil. And he discovered that he himself was a sinner in need of reconciliation to this thrice holy God. And as he read the pages of Scripture, relief crept over his heart as he saw that God sent his Son into the world to seek and to save the lost. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. This saying is trustworthy. Oh, what kind of God would do that? What beauty. And this man, now a Christian, trusted in Christ's life, Christ's merit, in the place of his own disobedience and sin. This man, now a Christian, trusted that when Christ died. Christ suffered in His place, bearing the punishment that He deserved. And this man went to a nearby church on Sunday and sang, bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place, condemned He stood. He sealed my pardon with His blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. In that same church, he learned in time of God's promises to Adam and to Abraham and to David and how they are all fulfilled in Christ. In Christmas season, by Christmas season, he sang things like this, Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. And he realized that he was one set free by Jesus. And he heard a sermon on the verse, who the Son sets free is free indeed. And he learned about God's patience and God's forbearance with the nation of Israel prior to the sending of the Messiah. And he learned how that is a picture of our sinfulness in God's forbearance with us. He learned that the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament pictured Christ Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He learned that the priests prefigured Christ, who is our great high priest. And he sang in that same church one Sunday before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me. And the years rolled by. And this man grew to love the people 
in the pews beside him. And they grew to love him. And it wasn't always exciting. And sometimes it felt kind of boring. And it was often hard. But through the ups and downs, the exciting and boring, he and his brothers and sisters in Christ plodded along. They learned. They sang. They ate and they drank of Christ's body and blood. And as the years rolled by, they baptized new believers. And they taught and they discipled these new believers. And as the years rolled by, these saints practiced hospitality, having one another over to their homes. And they loved and they served one another through all of the hardships and the difficulties and the crises and the awkwardness. And they forgave sins. And they reconciled and they persevered. And they say, I love thy church, O God. With the faces of one another in their mind's eye, they sang, For her my tears shall fall. For her my prayers ascend. To her my cares and toils be given till toils and cares shall end. And they labored on, all the while growing, sometimes imperceptibly like grass. But each and every one of them was growing. And the coals of love for one another and for God over time grew hotter and hotter. The longer they walked together, the more they loved each other. And they sang, the longer I serve Him, the sweeter He grows. And one evening, late in his life, this Christian man looked back many years later at his early days as a Christian. And he could see in the long view how much he had grown. And he didn't notice it any particular week between Tuesday and Friday or between one Sunday and the next. But over time, he could see in the long view how much he had grown. How much more of God he had come to know. How much love he had developed for the saints, for his brothers and sisters. And he could see how much more they loved him then than they did in the beginning. He found his heart longing to know God more. And he found himself longing to be together with the saints on Sunday. This is a modern day comparison of what it means that David longed to gaze on the beauty of the Lord in the house of the Lord, in the temple of the Lord. It's a fictional story, but I hope that one day my life 
will prove to have borne some likeness to it. And I hope that your lives will one day be seen to have borne some likeness to this story. I hope that we all live a life something like that. Earnestly desiring to see the beauty of the Lord. And because we earnestly desire to be the be- see the beauty of the Lord, we earnestly desire to be in that place where He has promised that His special presence would be. For us, that's the church. To live out our days in that place where God has promised to specially dwell. And from there, in that context, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That's what a modern day application of Psalm 27 and verse 4 would mean.